Get your Bibles open to Matthew's Gospel. We've been teaching and trying to fan the flames inside of us all to become passionate inviters. We started a number of weeks ago with the parable of the great banquet where the master brought together this wonderful party and he wanted folks to come and nobody wanted to show up to the party. And so he told his servants to run out and uh, send the invitation out to everybody. They did the best they could and they still were not able to fill up the whole house. And so he gave them the uh, admonishment to go to the highways, to the byways, to the hedges, to grab everyone they can, compel them, he said, to come in order that my house shall be full. And uh, we've just left off that parable, uh, that starting week, and we've just been sharing on these parables knowing that it is God's heart at the very least that all of us become passionate inviters. And so that's where we've been just dwelling for these last uh, few weeks. We've been uh, sharing several parables. Parables are simple, simple stories, hopefully carrying a great impact. And the one that I want to teach on today has to deal again with sowers and seed. Uh, we've talked concerning one parable with regards to a sower and seed, but this one comes from a little bit different angle. In fact, it follows that parable exactly, but it has a little bit a different angle and it has a little bit different understanding uh, coming with it. And I think uh, you'll find it interesting and I believe it will be of impact to us today as we hear what the Lord is saying. And I've entitled the lesson this morning, There's a Whole Lot of Sowing Going On. There's a whole lot of sowing going on. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. For those of you that were here a number of weeks ago, you'll recall in verse 18 was the parable of the sower going forth, throwing seed everywhere he went. And now we're up to verse 24, and he's giving another parable with regards to sower and seed. And this is what Jesus says. He puts forth to them a parable saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, and that might be just an interesting passage to underline. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go? And gather them up. But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. And I'm just going to leave it at that. For just a moment and talk to you about there's a whole lot of sowing going on. I don't know how your Bible is uh, sometimes sectioned off. If you have an old King James Version, sometimes you will see at the beginning of this particular portion, it will say the parable of the wheat and the tares. Some of the newer versions, as I understand it, will call it simply the parable of the weeds. Isn't that great? The parable of the weeds. Now, whenever you come to parables, interestingly enough, most of the time, 
Jesus is trying to unveil or trying to reveal some aspect of the kingdom of God. I'm going to stop here for just a moment and I want to remind some of you, maybe some of you have never heard this, but I just want to underscore some things about the kingdom. The kingdom is not somewhere you are going. Now, there are aspects of heaven that certainly uh, are the kingdom. In fact, if you'll go through the scripture, you will see when the kingdom is defined, it's defined in numerous ways. Paul, in the book of Romans, said uh, that the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, but righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Ghost. Now, how many of you know you can enjoy righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Ghost here and now? So you see, the kingdom isn't just somewhere you're going, but it could be some thing that has come. He would later say in the Corinthian letter, he said that the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. In fact, every time power, miracles, maybe signs and wonders, these things show up, there's a manifestation at that moment of the kingdom. You all remember Jesus even taught us to pray in uh, what we have defined as the Lord's Prayer. He said that we're to pray, what? Thy kingdom Thy will be where? On as it is in. So obviously in heaven there's an expression of the kingdom that probably, uh, and I won't say probably, it is perfect. It's, it's utopic. It's, it's all the things that you would perceive uh, God's uh, rulership to look like. Uh, it is expressed absolutely perfectly in heaven. But here's the good news. The good news is, is that the kingdom splashes over to here. The kingdom has an expression in the earth today. And so the kingdom, in fact, Jesus even said, he said at one time, he said, don't look here and there, even with signs observing, for the kingdom of God is within you. Now, all of this is being said. Some of you have through the years been led to believe that the kingdom was somewhere you're going. The kingdom is not somewhere you're going. The kingdom is something that has come. In fact, the kingdom in its most simplistic understanding should be defined like this. It is the place of God's rulership. See, kingdom, the king's dominion. Wherever the king exercises dominion, there is the kingdom. And so wherever his rule is manifest, there you will begin to see the kingdom established and so if he rules in your life as i know many of you uh, would testify to that god rules in your life that's why jesus said don't look everywhere for the kingdom it's in you here his rule starts and as his rule is expressed in your marriage and as you would look at your marriage and together you would say we want god to rule in our marriage there the kingdom has come if it's in your house and you want god to rule in your house there the kingdom has come And this message isn't so much on dominion or kingdom, although that's a wonderful topic to begin to explore. The question always comes is how far can this kingdom rule extend? And I oftentimes say, as far as our obedience lets it. That's the kingdom. And so when Jesus came into the earth, he came as the embodiment of the kingdom. And as he moved into situations and as he healed the sick and as he freed those that were oppressed or, or, or bound by demons, uh, there his kingdom was being expressed. The rule of God was invading. And I can tell you it was 
quite mysterious. It was quite exciting. Everybody was just enamored with it. Some people didn't like it because Jesus came not with carnal, natural weapons, but with spiritual power and with spiritual force to begin to establish, once again, God's reign in the earth. Now, having said that, uh, he begins to explain these things in parables. And so when you begin to read a parable and he says that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like this, and he tells a parable, don't instantly leap to the eternal realm. Because sometimes the parable won't make sense if you try to apply it in the eternal realm. This is one of those parables. This parable has nothing to do with where you're going. It has everything to do with what goes on in the earth right now as it begins to respond to God's rule breaking through in all of our lives, in every arena of life, in every venue. How many of you know there is no area of this earth that God does not rule over? It's all His. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. So His rule is breaking through in all sorts of ways. And Jesus begins to explain some things to his disciples concerning this, and he picks up on this sower seed theme that he previously used just a few verses prior to this in another parable. And and so he told us in the previous parable of a sower which was sowing seed of the word, as you'll recall, into people's lives. And of course, he was sowing seed indiscriminately. It was hitting all different types of soil. And in that parable, it had to deal with how the word is sowed and the different types of soil, people's hearts, that would respond or receive that sowing. And I made the simple point that Sunday that we're not to worry about the soils. We're to worry about our sowing. We're to sow everywhere we go. Now, he gives us another parable here on sowing. And there's some important differences And I want to read you because these first couple parables, he does us a favor. He interprets them for us. I'm personally grateful for that. Uh, I know I can be a little dense at times. And so he takes a couple parables, he interprets them, and then we don't get much interpretation on parables after that. But this one, there is some interpretation, and that comes up in verse 36. So in Matthew 13, 36, when the multitude was sent away, His disciples came to him. This makes me feel good. Explain to us the parable of the tares in the field. Isn't it good to know you could walk with Jesus and still be clueless? Yeah, guilty. Verse 37, he answered and said to them, now listen very carefully, there's some important differences. He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Oh, thank you. He just clears this right up real clear. Says, therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness now hear me lawlessness interesting in in, in the bible is anomia which literally means without without order without law without without authority lawless is more than just you're out doing the big you know the top 10 sins 
Lawless is when you refuse to function under a divine order or authority. That's what lawless means. And he, and he will cast them into the furnace of fire. They'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Let, uh, it says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, there are a couple things I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you some, what do they call these? Juxtapositions, I think is the fancy word. That must have been the Holy Ghost because I don't know where that one came from. Listen to me real carefully. Just zone in real quick. The first parable weeks ago, we were told that we are the sower. In this parable, he is the sower. Are you following me? We sow, now he sows. Last week, the first parable, the seed was the word. In this parable, the seed is people. So there's some differences here. In the first parable, Jesus explains that we're to sow into every person freely. He just says, cast seed. It's going to go on all different types of soil. But in this parable, it says that both God, the Son of Man, and the enemy are sowing people into the world. There's a little bit of difference here. In the first parable, we're told that the heart of the people or the soil that the seed falls on, the heart of the people, must receive the seed. In this parable, we see that God, who is the sower, the Son of Man, is sovereign over the results. In other words, he's sowing seed and the enemy is sowing seed and and God is sovereign over the results. So, you and I, as we're putting all of this together, are to sow the seed of the word and God is sowing the seeds of conversion. I'm saying this slowly because I really hope in this day of superficial American Christianity that you guys will let this go in really, really deep into your system. This is a parable. If I could label the parable, I would say a parable of American church life. We sow the seed. Like this morning, I'm just sowing seed into people's hearts. There's probably good soil here. There's probably soil that's like the, 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 uh, the ground that the cares of the world will soon choke out. Maybe what gets sowed. There are some here that it might take, but you're under intense pressure. And there are some here, it'll just go f- straight over their heads. Maybe. I don't, you know, who, who knows? I don't know. All I know is I'm just sow seed. But here's the deal with this parable. This parable is God will sow the seed of conversion. And the enemy, this is interesting. As God is doing this, the enemy is sowing the seed of the counterfeit. So you can begin to see that there's indeed a whole lot of sowing going on in there. All of this is taking place, he says, in the world. That makes sense because in every arena of the world, there will be kingdom expression. There's kingdom expression in here. There's kingdom expression out in the world. There's kingdom expression everywhere we go. There's nowhere you cannot go that God is not wanting to break through in kingdom authority. But he says to us that as all this is happening, you need to understand that wheat will grow up and he says that tares will grow up. And this will be very, very important to know in far more profound ways here in just a moment. But the main point of the parable is that 
in the rule of God and in this kingdom sphere, and I'm not talking about heaven, I'm talking about his activity now, because how many of you know that when you get to heaven, I'll just say it real southern and simple, ain't no tares in heaven. Just like, just like people used to preach the promised land is heaven. Well, there ain't no giants in heaven either. All right? So we're not talking about heaven, we're talking about now. There can be now, even in kingdom activity, in a kingdom sphere, a mixture of activity that has both wheats and tares. Now, I'm going to take away just a few points, and I'll, I'll dig into that here in just a moment or two in a little bit deeper way. I want to give you just, I think what I got here is about five takeaway points that I think will be important for us to remember as we're just learning what it means to be passionate inviters. Number one, I want you to remember that Jesus, one of his points that he's making is, is that God does the drawing and the saving. See, I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not planting or sowing these seeds of wheat. That's God. God, God is causing wheat to come forth. I can, I can throw seed out, but it's God who ultimately brings forth wheat. John 15, in both verse 16 and 19, it says this, if you can post it, guys. It says, Jesus is speaking, you did not choose me. I want you to hear that. You may have thought you chose the Lord. Jesus is going to clear up a little confusion here this morning. You didn't really choose him. And the reason you didn't choose him, it's just like when we say, you know, uh, uh, he wasn't lost, you were. You didn't find the Lord, he found you. You know, it's not like you did him a favor by saying yes. You did not choose me, Jesus says, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Now, leap to verse 19 in that same chapter. He says, if you were of the world... The world would love its own. Basically, what he's setting up there is saying, if the world really doesn't like you at times, that's probably a pretty good indicator that you're one of his. If the world is always loving you, well, I'll just leave it at that. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, the world hates you. The world hates you. Now, I want you to listen to me because we're going we're gonna to work through some pretty deep terrain, but it's important terrain. I'm a great believer that Christ died for everyone. I, that's just John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, whosoever will. Colossians 1, 16 through 18 says that all things were created by him and for him and through him all things are reconciled back to him. So I believe that everything on this earth, including you and me, were designed to give glory to God. But I want to be really clear and not let this go too quickly. You cannot make a choice unless God chooses you to be drawn to Him. Now that may sound like a semantic gymnastic moment, but it's a very important moment. God is the one who plants people in His kingdom. We have become in the American church, so self-centered that even our theology has developed into sort of this, this, this doctrine of I can come into the kingdom anytime I'm good and ready. 
We have people right now who would say, maybe they never articulated it, but inside it's being processed, that they're saying things like this. In fact, I know young people or young adults or younger folk would would fall into this trap. They'll say to themselves, I'm young. I've got lots of time. You know, Jesus hadn't come for years. He probably has a whole lot more time before this is all going to wind up. I want to have some fun. I don't want to restrict my life. I want to do a little living. I know I, I probably need to get things right. But you know, truth of the matter is, I'll wait till I get a little older. I'll have some fun. When I get a little older and I need to settle down, I'll get serious. I'll get things right then. And the reason they process like this is because they think it's their choice. They think I can do this because... The gates are wide open anytime I'm ready. Be very careful. Scripture is clear that you can resist God to the place of what the Bible says is searing or reprobation. Which means, listen, that God as he draws people, and I think everybody at some time in their life has experienced a drawing, a God drawing. There's something in you that draws you to come to God. It draws you to be reconciled to God. It draws you to be right with God. It draws you to want to please God. You're drawn. There's something in your heart. I believe everybody probably has a moment like that, certainly in America, at some point or another. And what we begin to think is, we begin to think, well, God did it today, and and I won't get it taken care of today, but there's always next week or next month or next year or maybe when I'm 40 or maybe when I'm 50 or 60 and maybe if I play my cards right, I'll just wait until I'm on my deathbed because we've heard so many stories of that 11th hour conversion. We've heard so many stories of that person who waited till the last minute and their last dying, gasping breath where they cried out for Jesus. And you know, here's the good news. God will at times draw at the very 11th hour in people's lives. But listen to the whole scoop. The whole scoop is as he draws you and you sear yourself off to that drawing, there comes a moment when you become impervious to that. The songs won't move you anymore. Pastor's preaching is familiar. You've heard it a thousand times from pastor. You don't need a tape. You don't need a CD. You don't need, it just, and you've just reached the point where the scripture says their consciences have been seared to the place where they have resisted. It's, it's, just, it's just like when you're doing calisthenics or you're doing weightlifting. And after a while, whatever it took to move you that time, it takes more to move you next time. It's the same way when people face tragic circumstances and oftentimes I've watched people face tragic circumstances knowing that they need God. And I'll say to myself, oh Lord, could you use this moment to soften their heart, draw them to yourself, help them to see their need, the frailty of life, the swiftness of how it can come and go, And yet they'll come out of those moments where everybody can see God was trying to reach them. Trying to capture their attention. Everybody can see it, but for whatever reason, they can't see it. And it's just another one of those moments where the the callous of the heart gets another layer. 
And I often say to myself, how, how far will the rope have to go? And how deep is that barrel or hole that they'll have to fall in before they're awakened? And I simply say this. Sometimes I'll have people come up and say, boy, pastor, what were you trying to do, scare us? Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm telling you, when God draws and you say no, you're layering yourself with one more layer of callous. I'm not saying you're out or you're done or that God won't reach to you again. I'm not saying that. Remember, it's not up to me. It's up to Him. And I'm not ready to embrace, and this theologically is not, do not think I'm, I'm, I'm teaching in any way some unconditional election. But let me tell you, when God saves you and when he when he plants you and when you become when you become wheat i can tell you one of the easy pictures out of this parable is that you bear fruit wheat has a head on it that's full of grain it's different than a tear i'm going to explain that in just a minute a tear looks like a wheat but there's no fruit in its head so wheat has this fruit in its head and and and, and so when god plants the 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 sons and the daughters of the kingdom. What that means is there's fruit in there. There's a changed life. There's the love for God. There's the love for His ways. There's obedience in your life. There's the need for fellowship. The desire for wholeness. You want to go on. You want to know more and and embrace more. It's it's no longer duty. It's it's in you. It's, It's just what begins to bear fruit in your life. But I believe the reason... At times in America, we don't see this or we've, we've sort of twisted our doctrine in order to somehow let people be saved but not really committed or, or, or saved but really not, not living all out for the Lord. I don't even get that anymore. It says that when God plants a seed, it's wheat and it bears fruit. So this is what I want to suggest. That not everybody who may be in the kingdom functioning within the sphere of what God's activity is, not everyone may be a wheat. There may be some who are tares. Now this is what the liberating portion of this whole discussion is for me. And I'll get to it at the end. I, you, may never know which one's which until we get to the end of the age. I'm going to leave it there for just a moment. God is the one who does the drawing. God is the one who does the choosing. God is the one who does the saving. Number two, Satan has certain liberties to counterfeit. That's what it says here. It says the son of man sowing and it says the enemy sowing. So as Jesus is sowing wheat, Satan is sowing tares. Tear, I mentioned, is a plant that looks exactly like wheat. In fact, it's almost indistinguishable. In fact, until the time of harvest, when you see that there's no fruit or grain in its head, is about the only time you can tell what's wheat and what's a tear. Now, the point I think Jesus is making is that in the world, there are people, and he's telling this to the disciples, he's pulling them off to the side. Remember, he just got done talking to the multitudes, so they had a big crowd there. But he pulls his disciples off to the side, and he says, come here, I want to tell you something. I just want to remind you, don't... Don't get too worked up about the crowd here too quick. I want to tell you something. There are going to be some in that crowd who say they are wheat and in some ways look like wheat 
But I'm going to tell you the fruit of true conversion won't be operating in their life. That's what Jesus is saying to them. Now, this can be anything from well-intentioned moral people to those who simply use the label Christian. Hey, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm wheat. Look at my t-shirt. Wheat. That's me. But Jesus says, be careful, because it could look like wheat, but that doesn't always mean it is wheat. You say, well, what do we do with that, Pastor? Now that you said it, what do you do with it? Do we just like start interrogating everybody and investigating everyone to find out if they're really truly wheat or tear? I'll get to that in just a moment as well. But this was meant to remind his disciples to not be naive in spiritual matters. Not all who say they're wheat may be wheat. He's reminding them, I think, as he teaches that he says, are you wheat or are you a tear? Because you see, God is the one, I'm going to get back to this, God is the one who draws and chooses and saves. I believe the door is open for everybody. But, but the key isn't up to you, it's up to Him. It's not when it's convenient for you, it's when it's His moment for you. See, all through Scripture we see false things instigated by the enemy. Do we not see false teachers, false prophets, false apostles? In fact, Paul himself would say there are moments that even Satan comes as an angel of light. Have you ever thought what that means? About when when the enemy would come as an angel of light? What it means is this. It will have some of the trappings of true Christianity seemingly around it, but internally or at its root it's coming out of a satanic or demonic origin and he says these things because he's trying to look at them early and say it should not surprise you that there will be false things now hear me just because there's a false thing does not mean we get rid of true things i've listened to this for years people people will say every time we talk about apostolic people will people will drop back into their old a dispensational cessationism, and they'll say, well, you know, all those apostles, they, they drifted off the scene after the first century. I don't know what Bible you're reading, but my Bible shows me that there were probably 20-plus apostles that I can name by name in the Scripture that were after the original 12. Not only that, Paul said in Ephesians 4 that apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers would hang around until we all came to the unity of the faith, Now, have we all come to the unity of the faith yet? Well, of course not. We aren't even to the unity of the faith in this room. Much less in the body of Christ. And it says, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I can't claim the stature of the fullness of Christ yet. I'm I'm growing, I'm getting there. But, But he says, these apostles will stay there to equip the believers in order that these happenings might take place within the church but there are people who will tell you all that apostolic stuff passed away they haven't read their bible they've read their traditions and just because there's a false thing doesn't mean we get rid of a true thing just because there are false teachers it doesn't mean all of a sudden all teachers are wrong or that there's false prophets that all prophets are wrong or that there's false apostles, that all apostles are wrong any more than there are false disciples, therefore get rid of all disciples. Are you following me? This is what Satan does. When Satan cannot just outright 
stop you. And when he finally realizes that you're born again and, and, and you're going forward, let me tell you, I'll just give you a little hint as to the enemy's strategy. What he does is he starts giving you tares in your life who will start sowing things into your spirit to confuse you. And if you can stay confused, you can stay out of the will of God because Paul said God is not a God of confusion. So as long as he can keep you confused, he can keep you and render you powerless. But the minute you have clarity and the minute you have understanding and and the minute you begin to walk and, and, and embrace revelation is the moment you become of kingdom purpose and you become a threat to the domain of darkness. But Jesus up front is saying to his disciples, you need to hear this, that there will be some who will be wheat, they will bear fruit, all the things that you would expect to see will be there. But listen, there will be these tares that will be hard to distinguish, if not outright impossible. So basically, I think he's just throwing this out. Be discerning. Be discerning. Say, well, pastor, how do I know uh, that to be true? How do I know this all takes place? How do, what, what do we do about all of this? How did it happen even? Well, point three I want to pull out of the parable is this. The reason all of this happened is because people are spiritually asleep. It says here in the parable that the sower sowed good seed, but while men slept, the enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. While men slept, the enemy sowed. We're living in a sleepy church age, aren't we? We're real sleepy. I mean, I'm not saying we aren't large. Of course, you've heard the old saying, we're a... We're a mile wide and we're about an inch deep. We're sleepy. Sleepy, I think, is the biblical word for undiscerning. We're sleepy. There's no longer any ability for us to test the spirit and see if it be of God. There's no ability in us anymore to just just come to the house of God for maybe a short period of time during your week and open up the Bible and just begin to understand with a depth of understanding what it is that God's trying to communicate to us. So yes, we can be successful, not for our sake, but for His sake. We're sleepy. Paul said to the Roman church, he said, it's high time we awakened out of our sleep. And we're spiritually sleepy. Which is why we begin to swallow, like like spiritual garbage disposals, anything that gets thrown our direction. Now, I understand We can be overly skeptical, we can be overly critical, and we can be overly judgmental. I understand that, and I probably have to keep my temperature in this regard probably a little bit closer than some of you do. Because I've been in the ministry for so long, I've seen every weird, wacky, crazy thing come along. And so when anything comes along anymore, for me, i got to kick the tires for a few times before I'm going to take a ride in that car. That's just me. It's part of my experience. Might not, might not ought to be that way, but it's just kind of how it's developed in me. But listen, the opposite end of that spectrum is when anyone just simply says, well, I'm a believer too, and you just, you just take in everything without any filter, without any discernment, without even taking a moment and just asking yourself, is this, is this someone I ought to link up with? Is this someone I ought to develop a relationship with? Is this someone I ought to fellowship with? I'm not, again, I'm not trying to, to hold the fort or make the circle smaller, but I think it's a legitimate question in here to understand that within kingdom circles there can be wheat and there can be tares. Yes, there can be. Because we've slept, 
We've slept. Men slept. Isn't it interesting? The sower didn't sleep and the enemy didn't sleep. Men slept. I'm telling you what I have come to learn from that. It's because our pulpits have, have grown sleepy and undiscerning. And in America today, I wish I could tell you out of 350,000 pulpits that are in operation this morning in America, I wish I could tell you that every single one of them is going to help awaken people. That probably isn't true. There are a lot that are. There's a significant number that aren't. And part of the, the problem has been is that as people, we've not wanted to have been awakened. Awaken. How many of you know, when the alarm goes off, most of us would rather push the snooze button and say, give me some more snooze time. That's all of our nature. So why, why would we go to church and when someone sounds an alarm, why would we do that when we could go somewhere and push a snooze button? We're sleepy. It's time to awaken. Number four, I'll leave that one go. Whenever God moves in sowing, just a reminder, the enemy sows as well. Now, this probably may not interest you as much as it interested me as I began to think about it. But I have a couple degrees in church history, and I find it fascinating that whenever God moves in revival, and whenever God is saving souls in an unusual way, whenever God cranks up his harvest plan, and you see just an unprecedented maybe happening, it's interesting historically that at the same time, that's when most cults arise. In that in, that's an interesting historical fact. Why is that? It's because when the enemy sees God bringing in the harvest, and he can't stop it, then what he does is he begins to throw his tear seed out there. And he begins to throw in the midst of it all tares. Sowing right alongside a real move of God. You see, <clears throat> the, enemy, the, en- the enemy, you know, he may be defeated, uh, but he ain't dumb. Listen, I'll just tell you this. You may be smart, but you ain't as smart as him. He has this amazing ability because of sheer experience to be able to confuse the people of God. And again, if he, he says, if I can't stop what God is doing in his church, if I can't stop what God is doing in his people's lives, then i tell you what I'm going to do. I'm just going to confuse everybody and just throw tares in the midst of all these things either. Now, we finally get to this last point, number five. And this is when we kind of wrap up some of these thoughts that I've thrown out here to you. Number five. How do you begin to work with this? How do you deal with it? What does it mean to me? How is this practical? Well, here's what I'm going to share with you. Number five is some things will only get sorted out in the end. That's what he says here. Because somebody's ready, somebody steps up and uh, says that, uh, he says his servant said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? Jesus was really kind of comical at one point because he knew that there would probably be some within that initial leadership group that would raise their hands and say, hey, if you want someone to go in and take care of this, I volunteer. There's always a sheriff in every bunch, see. There's always somebody who says, I'll take care of it. I'll do it. And and this is what the Lord says. The Lord says, wait, 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 wait. Before we do this, I'm going to just tell you, no, I don't want you. Why? Because sometimes even the separation process is more destructive than necessary. And you can't look at the head of the stalk until it is harvested. There are just some things we won't know until we get to the end of the age. Now, hear me closely. Because I started thinking about this, and I started thinking, well, Lord, it seems to me that, that if that be true, then is, 
What, what, what about all the discipline passages? What about all the, the church discipline that takes place? And, and let me just share this with you. I believe that the church is the place where when people come under authority and when people fall under church discipline and when people have their lives circumscribed by faithful attendance and by faithful uh, uh, you know, showing up and participation. You know what happens? I've said this for years. A person who doesn't have the real deal can only fake it about six months. And after about six months, they just collapse under the enormous strain it takes to fake. Ladies, you know this to be true. You know guys that you have dated who the first few months of your dating relationship was Prince Charming. But after a few months, it took so much energy for them to fake it that they couldn't fake it anymore. And you began to see the real person begin to emerge because if the real deal isn't in there eventually what happens is it begins to be made manifest i've often said this that when you'll find out if a person is truly converted by just watching their life for probably six months to a year and you'll begin to see whether people truly have been planted and touched by the lord because the fact of the matter is if you're trying to do this in your own strength you will wear out you sometimes wear out even when it is His grace is sufficient for you. But this is an important point. And that's the point you can't make happen. We were doing the government of the twelve, which was our process for helping people you know, be turned around from becoming just a follower into a disciple and eventually a leader. I, I remember how, how faithfully we endeavored to apply and probably we applied some of the processes too strenuously and we learned a lot through that but having said that there were some things that were interesting to me it's interesting to me how when you begin to share with people that if they want to be a leader and of influence over other people they ought to memorize a little scripture because you know the bible says thy word have i hid in my heart that i might not sin against you lord you understand that's in the bible so there's actually a uh, uh, an admonishment or even a command of memorizing God's word. Now, again, nobody ever said you had to memorize it cover to cover. I don't have it memorized cover to cover. In fact, if you, if you could take everything I have memorized, it would be a minuscule part of probably this whole book. But it was amazing to me how suggesting to a believer that it might be a good thing to get some scripture in your system, well, you would be amazed at the reaction that would take place from that. <laughs> I'd hear everything was, I'm not called to do that. I'm not gifted to do that. I don't have a good memory. Well, it was, You've memorized the top 20 filthy songs on the radio. You memorized your gym locker combination. You memorized the way to work. You would be amazed. I'm just, and, and, I, and I share this with you because it, as I was processing all of this, I began to realize that not all are wheat who say they are wheat. 
You say, you judging them? No, no, not judging. I, I don't know. Maybe God hadn't called them to memorize the word. I guess we'll find out one day, won't we? Because some things only get sorted out in the end. And I'm just going to get back. I do believe that within the church, there can be those processes that help us begin to discern that for others and for ourselves. This is, I guess, what sort of leapt in me. It would bother me to not want to memorize the word that would set me free. It would seem to me that if you were his, it might bother you too. But you know, I've been known to be just kind of an over-expector. Are you following me? You see, that's the, these are important, important points. You see, you may not know who really is a wheat. You may not know who really is a tear. And can I just say this? You cannot go from this place and suddenly think you can begin to be the one who's assigned to determine that. That's what Jesus was saying. I don't know. Maybe, maybe everybody in the room is wheat. Hallelujah. But could I suggest without offending that maybe not? Who decides? The scripture says that at the end of the age, the angels will begin to sort these things out. You see, we've already said that not all who say they are, are. They could be counterfeit. They could be confused. They could be naive. They could be ignorant. They could be lying. They could be deceived. I'm not, I don't know. I'm not the one determining these things. There may be some that are so obvious that everybody can see that, but others may not be as obvious. But you need to be careful before you jump in and decide to pluck out on your own. Because if you pluck out on your own, you may be presuming on a job that's not yours. You say, well, pastor, help us, help us now. Because if, if, if you're really listening to this with ears, not for someone else, because I know how it works during message time. There are people that are going, I hope, I hope, I hope so-and-so is hearing this. They really, they really need to hear this. Well, I hope they are too. But let's leave them for just a minute. And let's bring it to you. How do you know? Don't you think that's probably where it should start? How do I know? I'm, I'm well, your pastor. You, surely you're wheat. Well, how would I know that? How, if there are false apostles, and false prophets and false teachers and false believers, then how do I know that? Have you ever wrestled with that? How do you know? Now, some of you would probably know the answer to that very quickly. But, but just, let's just go through this, because I think just being simple at times is really super important. Let's just go through this. I know some people would say this. I remember my mom telling me, when I was five years old, I, I, during the end of service, I went down to an altar. Pastor was down there. He hugged me, and I remember she told me all of this. And when I got home, and for the last 15 years of my life, at least weekly, she's been telling me, you're a believer. 
you're a Christian. I saw you walk down that aisle when you were five years old. Now listen, do I believe that kids can be saved when they're five? My answer is yes. I believe that. And I believe I've heard stories of that happening. And I believe I have stories in my household of that. But can I just share this with you? Your mama can't be your assurance. See, that's our problem. Our problem is you shook the preacher's hand and he said that I was a Christian. Well, I'm, I'm glad he did and good for him. And maybe he had every reason to say that. I'm not suggesting he did anything wrong. But I'm simply saying your preacher is not your assurance. That card you sign is not your assurance. You say, Pastor, you're making me nervous. Well, maybe it's good for just a moment because if I can make you nervous, then maybe you need to check out your assurance. I mean, how do you know? How do you really know? They both look the same. But yet they're not the same, and it's not going to get sorted out until the end. How do these things work? Can I suggest something to you? I told you this story about John Wesley himself, who was a missionary in Georgia, preaching to the Indians, was such a miserable failure. He gets on a ship, he's sailing back to England, and he says these words in his journal, I went to save the Indians, but, Indians, but alas, who shall save me? I th- that's interesting, because you can be a missionary and not be saved. We don't talk about these things much in church because we're practical universalists. Lord, if you tripped in the front doors, saved! Come on! We'll make, we'll make you a small group leader. We'll, we'll give you your ministry. Don't, hey, if you ever doubt, come see me. I saw you trip in that door. I'm spending some time here on purpose. How do you know? We tear both looks the same. No, no, nobody, nobody, listen, nobody has the ability to step in and say, you're wheat, you're tear. I'm not doing that. I'm just, I'm just, how do I know? I think that would be an important question. Wouldn't you think, wouldn't you hate to find out some of these answers when the angels show up at the end of the age? I would hate that. I would hate to have lived this whole thing and come to the end of the age and the angel looks at me and goes, tear. I go, oh man. And we're like, what am I going to say? Well, my mama said when I was five, I signed the card, angel. I prayed the prayer, angel. I had a small group, angel. Even Jesus said, I prophesied in your name. I cast out devils. And Jesus said, I never knew you. How do I know? Listen. This is so crazily simple. And yet it's so easily missed. It's what Paul said in Romans 8. It says this, that his spirit bears witness with my spirit that I've been translated from death unto life. And now that I'm in life, according to what John wrote in 1 John, he says now that there's life, that the ways of God and the commands of God are not burdensome to me anymore. You don't have to throw the Ten Commandments at me anymore and 
and tell me I better live by them. You don't have to do that to me anymore because they're written in my heart. And I want to do them. You don't have to get me up in the morning and drag my tail off to the house of God because I, I feel exactly like the psalmist felt when he said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. I'm not, I'm not offended when someone looks at me and says, you know, have you considered this part of your life and your walk? There's nothing that starts to rise up and says, who are you? There's something that says, you know, I just want to be everything the Lord would want for me. Thank you. I could go on, but I think you probably get the point. Wheat and tear. Before we worry about everybody else, maybe it's time we first worried about us. You see, whenever revival started, this is the most interesting thing. And I know I'm taking a, an extra minute or two, forgive me. But whenever revival starts historically, it never starts in the marketplace. It always starts in his church. You know why? It's because his church is the location where he dwells, and that's where he finds the most hearts that need to be obedient first. And out of that flows revival into the world. I'm going to be honest with you. I know, I know what my doctrine is, and I've, I've built my understandings through the Word. I'm just going to say it out loud. You know, we're going to be going here in a few days out to uh, the abortion uh, clinic here in West Ashley for our midway rally. And uh, I'm going to be standing there with some Catholics. I'll just say it out loud. It still mystifies me to this day how you can pray through beads and... And uh, Mary, I, I'm, I'm Protestant through and through. I don't get that. I don't understand that. Although I have to respect that it's been mostly them that have held the fort with regards to that fight for years. I can't sort all that out, and that's not my job to sort it all out. I'll leave that to the angels at the end of the age. I am no angel. I'm not sure I get... I'll just say it. I don't get Glenn Beck. It's a Mormon. Has more passion, zeal, knowledge, and prophetic insight, I think, sometimes more than Protestant ministers. I don't, I don't, I don't, under, I don't know how to untangle all of that. I'm going to be honest with you. I look at that and told my wife, I don't know how to untangle all this. I guess, I guess I'm going to leave that to the angels at the end of the age. Because you know what? He's the only one that had the temerity to challenge Rick Santorum on his tithing. You go, Glenn Beck. Mormon or not, that's cool. Do you understand? There are wheat and tares in every fellowship, every denomination, every arena. There are wheat and tares everywhere. And you know what? Some things are only going to be sorted out by the angels. But this is our action plan. And I'll leave you with this. Action plan one. Ask yourself this question. Are you, don't worry about the one next to you, are you spiritually awake? Are you discerning? Are you wise? Don't you worry about other people. Why don't you worry first about you? How you doing? Where's your assurance? I'm not trying to talk you out of anything. If I can talk you out of anything, then you didn't have anything. 
You can't talk me out of my experience. I know what experience I had. It's lasted me now for 34 years. My folks thought it was a phase I was going through, and that phase hasn't ended yet. Number two, are you overly sectarian in your relationships? What that means is, unless you're exactly like me, I won't have anything to do with you. I do have to work on that one because I I tend to think I'm right. Of course, a lot of you tend to think you're right too. But you know what? All of us could be wrong. And and I'm glad to know that maybe that's not going to be on God's final exam. It's about the blood and about Jesus and about whether or not we've given our hearts away to him. And the angels get to settle that one. Number three. And can you leave some things in God's hands? <laughs> That's a hard one. Can you leave some things in God's hands? Stand with me, will you?